The Tom Woods Show, episode 1604. Prepare to set fire to the index card of allowable opinion. Your daily dose of liberty education starts here. The Tom Woods Show. Folks, I have the best, nicest, smartest, brightest group of like-minded, friendly folks you can possibly imagine where we learn from each other, we get outraged with each other, we rejoice with each other. It's a wonderful community of folks, and you, as a loyal listener of The Tom Woods Show, belong inside it. It's called The Tom Woods Show Elite, and you can get in there via supportinglisteners.com. Everybody, Tom Woods here. Bob Murphy Week continues. You all know Bob by now. PhD in economics from NYU, libertarian theorist, Austrian economist, and all-around great and very, very productive guy. Before I get to Bob and the topics we're going to cover today, let me tell you about a Tom Woods Show listener who has started a libertarian podcast called The Invictus Mind, of course, named after the famous poem. But the idea of the site and the podcast is to find political freedom, financial freedom, and spiritual freedom. So if you look at the most recent couple of episodes as of this recording – Well, they're covering topics like with our friend uh, Peter Quinones, uh, topics like uh, the police state and secession movements in the United States and whether college is really necessary for everyone. A lot of important topics, edgy topics that need to be uh, hit on and all under this general umbrella of political, financial, and spiritual freedom. So check it out at theinvictusmind.com. I'll link to it at tomwoods.com slash 1604. And of course, this person is getting this shout out because why? We all know this, right? He used my link to get his hosting, which means he got an excellent price on web hosting. And he gets some free publicity from me to get some folks to head over there and check out what he's doing. And I give this bonus and several other very valuable bonuses, including membership in my mutual help bloggers group, where we all help each other out when you have questions or you just need some support, we're there for each other. Great bonuses. All you got to do is just get your hosting through my link. So if this interests you, you're thinking of starting your own site, your own blog, then uh, check out all the goodies you can get from me at tomwoods.com slash publicity. Now with Bob Murphy today, we're going to talk about, as I say, some hard cases, uh, like for example, consumer product safety. You know, what about that? Is there really a way, is it naive to think that the market can handle that, for example, or things like hunting rights and preventing overhunting or fishing rights, things like that. These are the sorts of topics we're going to cover today with Bob. Bob, welcome back. Thanks for having me. All right. These first couple episodes were a little on the technical side, but again, you know, the nerds also deserve some episodes, right? They deserve some episodes, but this one is for nerds and regular people. This, right? This one is very ecumenical. I've got a number of questions submitted by listeners that I've just accumulated over time. And now I've got you and I'm going to ask them of you because not one, I mean, I suppose you could make a whole episode on each one, but I think it would be a boring episode. So instead I want to cover a few. We're going to concentrate the boredom. So be rapid fire. Yeah, rapid fire. Exactly. Exactly. So we're that's going to be the format for the next few episodes. So to give people an example of the kinds of questions I might want to ask, it's easy to understand how you would have a property right, in um, your house or in a consumer good or your car, whatever. But it's not as easy to understand how rights to things like hunting and fishing would be allocated. And yet you can imagine that we would want to have some kind of right 
you know, acknowledged and recognized in those areas in order to prevent overhunting. Because if there are no property rights in it, then everybody has an incentive to just go and hunt everything right away rather than thinking about tomorrow. Because anything you don't shoot, somebody else will just shoot. Whereas if it's on your property, of course you don't want to shoot all of them because you're thinking about next year. But if you're just struggling out in the wilderness against everybody, you better shoot as many as you can right now or any that you don't. It's not like the other people are going to think about the future. They're just going to take them. So how do we establish such a thing? Or is there such a thing as as hunting rights or fishing rights? And, and, like, and also, how, like, how do you claim ownership to fish or deer that roam from place to place? Right. Okay. Great question. Actually, this, this reminds me when I was in college, I was on the debate team. And uh, I know that's probably shocking. Some of the listeners, they assumed I was the backup quarterback. and. Uh, and it was the the resolution was something about um something about saving like saving the or developing the earth's ocean resources or it was some boilerplate like that and it was clearly like an environmental topic but we took it for the affirmative we said yes and we privatized the oceans and we never lost that case Tom because the 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 other side they never even knew what to do with they're like are you kidding me and we just steamrolled them because they didn't they they didn't even know how to deal with that so. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Well, how about that? Yeah. So there's an anecdote plus some answers here on Bob Murphy Week. Uh, okay. So just to, make, to flesh out what you were saying there, because th- this really is an area where knowing some economics really helps make sense of the world and the crazy things. So right now, like if the government controls a, a certain lake, they might have restrictions on the fishing that you can do there because as you say, Tom, if they just let it be wide open, oh, laissez-faire would mean everybody would just overfish and after a while, all the fish are gone because, you know, there's a technical limit that you should do and then at which point you should stop and, and let the fish replenish. And so, but the way that the restrictions typically work when the government's running it is it will do things like restrict the, the size of the engine you can use or to say, oh, you can only use nets or things like this. So it's, it's like making the fishing less productive per hour of the fisherman's labor rather than just saying something like, okay, you can only catch so many pounds or the, you know, the fish you catch had to be above a certain size. So anyway, and, and just having, you know, the arbitrary like hunting or fishing seasons, things like that. So that's, that would clearly not carry over if it were all privately owned. So with some of this stuff, it's pretty simple that if it's a small enough thing, like just some company or some organization could own a pond or a lake or whatever and just have their their rules for how that would be carried out when it comes to stuff like like whales or things like that when we were in getting into this for our debate you know we were preparing our case for it for some of those things it seemed like the probably what would make more sense is if you actually just tagged the animal right so that in other words what what you would own would be the the giant sea creature and you could you know have a little radio signal or something that you you put on them and that's the way you would just like with horses you know you can brand a horse to show this is mine likewise with some large sea creature you could put some kind of electronic device on there nowadays with technology and that's the way you could establish ownership but or more generally you you could just have large areas of the ocean saying that you know so and so owns this in any tuna that are caught in this area you know, you have to pay the the fee to the to this company that owns that stretch of the ocean. And presumably, if that were the arrangement, if that the way the legal system shook out, then there would be economies of scale. And you know, nobody would want to own just a tiny little fraction of the volume of the ocean, or you know, down to a certain depth. 
you'd want to own a large amount to make sure that you captured most of the, so that, that, like you say, Tom, that is so that people refrain from overfishing that the beneficiaries would, would capture the, the, that economically. So, you know, having just a tiny little stretch of the ocean owned by individuals, if the rule were any fish you catch in that volume of water is yours, that, that would be inefficient for the reasons you're talking about. So, that's, you know, the, the general, so in other words, I would say there's no, I think one size fits all. I think it depends on the specifics, but in terms of, okay, well, how do we get there? It doesn't really matter. And that's kind of the beauty of having freedom and voluntary transactions is, is so long as you've somehow those, the, the property rights were codified, then people could rearrange who owned what in order to make it sensible. All right. So in, in other words, Tom, like if, if the rule were for some reason that, oh yeah, you can't, own specific animals you, or you know, creatures, you can just own either the water or the, or the, you know, if we're talking about hunting land, you know, just own the forest, then any deer that you happen to shoot on your, your land is yours. Then that would just lead to companies, you know, buying out their competitors and having large tracts of, of land or, or ocean, right? So, so I'm being a bit vague, but my point is whatever, if there were some crazy outcome that that, that system spat out, people could just rearrange contractually and figure out a way to, to capture, you know, the, to, to preserve the value of the economic resources by rearranging who owns what. Do you think, I don't know if you're, how much you know about this sort of stuff, but as far as you know, does the state try at least in some way to approximate this kind of arrangement now in order to prevent exactly the kind of outcomes we're describing? I mean, I, so let me answer you this way. When we were explaining our proposals for like, oh, so rather than having these crazy rules, like you can only use uh, shipping boats without engines and and things like that, or nets of a certain small size, like which were real. Like we weren't pull, pulling those out of the air. Like we were pointing to real world restrictions on fishing, the ostensible purpose of which was to prevent people from going in and completely, you know, destroying the, the fish stock. And so we were saying, oh, rather than do all those crazy things, instead, a much more rational system of property management and wildlife conservation would be blah, blah. And we listed our proposal. And, and we were saying that's what would happen in the private outcome. And so I remember one this our roommate or whatever, this kid down the hall was like, well, why wouldn't the state just do that? You know what I mean? Like, in other words, if, if you're just showing better techniques, then just go tell that to the bureaucrat. And the answer was the bureaucrats had nothing to gain from that, right? In other words, they weren't the one, like if you'd made some change in policy, that increased revenues by 40%, the bureaucrat who's in charge of the forest and wildlife for that four years or whatever, doesn't get to pocket that money. If he did, he'd go to jail. That would be embezzlement or, you know, stealing public funds. So um, what, the, what happens right now, Tom, is like you actually hit where you see over cutting for, or, you know, clear cutting of forests and things like that, where it doesn't make sense ecologically is where the government owns the forests. Because then, the, you know, they go, they have an incentive that the, the bureaucrats who are in charge of the decisions, like for leasing or whatever to outside logging companies, their incentive is not to preserve the capital value of that asset for the federal government. Instead, they want to give a sweetheart deal to the logging companies so that then when they're out of office, the, the bureaucrat who made that deal or signed off on it, then maybe, you know, they somehow get reimbursed, you know, whether it's explicit or just kind of an understanding that, oh, yeah, you treated us well, where you're going to get a nice consulting position among the, you know, National Loggers Association conference board, whatever. So, so yes, Tom, I mean, I think some of the people that go in there, they're aware of these issues, but as with all this stuff, when it comes to critiques of 
state action, you know, gee, why doesn't why doesn't the government just run? Why can't we run it like a business? Well, institutionally, no, you can't. It's not just a matter of you got to get some entrepreneurs in there with, with who think big and look outside the box. No, because the incentives are all screwed up. All right, completely unrelated question, but one that I get an awful lot. Uh, and that involves uh, consumer safety. Now, you've done a thing on this, and maybe we've talked about it a little bit, but it came up the other day in the Democratic debate because Elizabeth Warren gave the example of toasters that would light on fire, that you you would put some toast in there and you'd go to the other side of the house to help the baby and you'd be there a little longer than you thought you would. You come back and your your curtains are on fire. Well, thankfully, the government stepped in and now the manufacturers have inserted heaven knows what into it and things are better. And to think that anything short of that, any alternative approach could work is just naive, people would say. It's naive. You can't depend on companies to produce safe products. I mean, they'll say, yeah, yeah, yeah. Obviously, they don't want to kill all their customers, but that seems like a pretty weak response. So what would be the correct response? Well, first of all, I want to point out with that scenario, it would be crazy for someone to put toast into a toaster. You might put bread in there, I grant you, but why would you put that? It's silly. <laughs> all right. Um, yeah, that would be silly. Fair enough. You would deserve what happens to you. <laughs> um, okay, so here, this there, there's different layers of it. So, so one thing is just to point out that with all this stuff with consumer safety, there's typically a trade-off involved, or at least at some point there would be a trade-off involved. That there's there's no such thing as saying, oh, I want products to be safe or dangerous in in the real world. In practice, it's more of the products can be safer, but then they're going to cost more. There's going to be some other downsides, right? So like with a, with a car, to say, oh, well, should you be allowed to sell an unsafe car? Well, what does that mean? You know, the cars that people drove in the 1950s were a lot more dangerous than the ones now. But on the other hand, people still die in car accidents now. You could have everyone just drive around a tank at 10 miles an hour, and that would be pretty safe in terms of traffic accidents. But of course, that would be so expensive that a lot of most people wouldn't be able to drive in the first place. And probably more people would die from all the fallout of not being able to get around quickly. So um, with a lot of this stuff, again, I, like, I think people need to break out of this idea of products need to be safe and the government's going to come in and just ensure a minimum level of safety. No, that that's not. So even like in a, if they did it correctly, but then on top of that, the issue is if you have the, the government come in to do it, again, with the incentives or whatever, who's to say they're going to get it right in terms of insisting on uh, minimum standards that that make sense and actually are worth the cost. In, in other words, you know, to insist that something be done in order to meet some level of safety that might make the product so expensive that no, given the realities in the situation right now, you're actually hurting people by uh, in, by driving up the price and the safety of the product. So that so that's one thing. Now, in terms of okay, so if you didn't have the state coming in to in, to impose its own levels of of minimum standards, what would happen absent that? So, like you say, Tom, the ultimate check is just reputation, and people can go and you know look at consumer product reviews and things, and oh yeah, this TV blew up in my uncle's house last week, so I'm not buying. I'm giving that zero stars. I mean, that sounds goofy, but ultimately, that's I mean what's to prevent serial killers from infiltrating and all becoming Uber drivers? Well, at the very least, Uber, when somebody starts killing passengers, is going to kick them off, right? So that's the ultimate check, whether murder is illegal or something in the society. You don't have to really worry about large-scale serial killing occurring amongst Uber drivers. Um, but you obviously want more refinements than that. So there's things like 
the retail store, right? So like a Walmart or whatever the analog would be in a Rothbardian world, they would probably have a whole set of, you know, minimum standards, right? So you're not going to buy, you know, a lamp that you buy at Walmart that blows up when you plug it in. Whether the manufacturer is liable or not, or owes you some kind of compensation because of a clause in the contract, you're certainly not shopping at Walmart anymore. You're going to be upset with them. And so, you know, there's a layer right there, an intermediary where they would be the ones to evaluate, you know, they could have how it plays out, you know, whether there's third party testing agencies like uh, underwriters laboratories or whether the big company like the Walmart or whatever has its own team of safety people that evaluate products before, uh, hey, you know, before we give a big contract to this manufacturer and buy 16,000 of their units next month, we're going to randomly sample some of this stuff coming off their assembly line to make sure it's safe for our customers, right? So there'd be that level. Um, and then another thing too, though, just legally speaking, this, it has to I mean, there, I think there are things, for example, Tom, if somebody's selling chicken noodle soup and actually it's full of arsenic and the customer dies, like I don't merely think all oh, that restaurant's going to go out of business. I think that's clearly fraud and that the next of kin would have a, you know, a case, a criminal case, or at least a civil case for sure against the person who sold that product because that's not the conventional understanding of what chicken noodle soup is. And so I think likewise, you know, it, it would be dependent on the culture and, and so on. But I, I think it's reasonable that someone buying a lamp in our day and age doesn't expect when you plug that thing in, it's going to blow up or that if your hands happen to be wet or something that you plug that in, you're going to get electrocuted. And, and so I, I think there could be, you know, the legal system itself could have certain standards in there. Again, whether it, it flows out of just, you know, whatever the, the standard protections against fraud would be, because if you're advertising it without a bunch of explicit disclaimers, the consumer would naturally believe that when you said this is a lamp for sale, you meant a lamp that won't electrocute you, you know, that kind of stuff. Yeah. Let, let me, um, maybe one last thing. Is yeah. it like the, the airline? Because this is my favorite one. Like if you got rid of the FAA, then, oh, I guess planes would be falling out of the sky. I love this one, by the way. I've used this one myself. So yeah, go ahead. And as king of the airport, this is something near and dear to your yeah, heart. Yeah, I mean, this is a little yeah. bit up my alley. Yeah, yeah. You're threatening your kingdom. Um, so so with something like that, again, the conventional thing of, well, gee, if some airline's always not doing maintenance and their planes are crashing, that's not good for anybody. But that leads people to think, oh, so you got to be like Rain Man. If, if you know, some of your listeners, Tom, remember that Dustin Hoffman movie where he would, he was afraid to fly because he knew all the statistics of all the different... And, and no, the average consumer wouldn't need to do that. You could just, for example, one way of solving that problem would be that when you bought an airline ticket, part of the ticket was a clause saying, if there's a crash and you die, then the airline is going to give your estate, whatever, $500,000 compensation. And so if, suppose that just becomes the industry standard, and then the airlines don't want to be on the hook for that. You know, in other words, they don't want to have to be rolling the dice every time a jet takes off where they know they might lose $30 million, depending on how many passengers are on that thing. So they would want to go get insurance coverage for those events. And so the insurance companies then would come in and before they would grant policies to, you know, pledging to indemnify the airlines in case one of their planes went down, of course, they would have standards in place. So, the, you know, the insurance companies would be the ones that might say, okay, sure, we'll underwrite you for these humongous policies. And of course, the airlines would pay them a premium. But in order for us to be willing to do that, you're agreeing that we're going to randomly send in our people to give random, you know, drug tests to your pilots 
or we're going to randomly show up unannounced and then go and inspect, um, you know, your your engines and whatever, or just to watch to make sure that you, when the plane lands and your ground crews come out, you do the proper maintenance things that, that we think you ought to be doing, right? So there would be something analogous to the FAA with its own team of inspectors and standards. It's just, it would be a, a private party doing that and they would be the ones on the hook. So if they were wrong, if their standards actually weren't good, or they weren't enforcing them properly, you know, like if their inspectors were actually taking bribes under the table, you know, like they show up at Delta and the, and actually the Delta ground crew isn't doing the right maintenance checks, but they give the guy a thousand dollars to look the other way, the guy from the insurance company. Well, if that's what's going on and then that plane crashes, the insurance company just lost $30 million, right? So it's in their interest to make sure that their inspectors aren't corrupt or on the take. Whereas with the FAA, there's a plane crash, what happens they go to Congress and say, we're strapped. We need more money. And they get their, their budget goes up after a plane crash. Who's going to cut the FAA's budget after a plane crash? All right. That, as I said, I've used that explanation as a way of ex- letting people understand that on the one hand, we could have every single plane thoroughly inspected after every single flight. You know, that's conceivable. But everybody would see that's overkill and that's going to use way more resources than makes any sense. But on the other hand, we could have, you know, Bob Murphy inspect the plane. We'll give him 10 seconds and he knows nothing about what he's looking for. And then that'll be the inspection for the year. Obviously, that's too little. Mm. So the only non-arbitrary way of figuring this out, what is the, I hate to say optimal, but you know what I mean, what amount of of, uh, inspection and regulation in effect makes sense? And you can only do that through through the market. All right, finally. And, the, and real quick too, I know you yeah. want to get another one in, but it's also, it, it doesn't need to be the same for every customer. So obviously with plane crashes, that's a little tricky because then, you know, if you're flying over houses and stuff, but but like the, when people say things like, oh gee, like, you know, I like taking off my shoes and my belt and stuff for the TSA to keep me safe. Well, if that really did matter, that kind of stuff, well then maybe some airlines would do that, you know what I mean? And then those ones might have cheaper tickets or something, or they would they would have bigger clauses for indemnification if there's a crash. Whereas the ones that don't have that screening might say, well, we're not going to indemnify you because for all we know, there's a bomb on board, but hey, at least we're not groping you at ch- the security checkpoint. So I'm just saying like, it's it doesn't need to be that there's one point on that spectrum of privacy versus security, if that's the way you want to frame it, that you know, there's some leeway there. Just like not everyone has to drive a Cadillac. You can drive a junkier car, but it's cheaper. We don't force everyone to choose the exact point on that trade-off of price and quality. All right. Now, I know this is actually a hard one. So I wonder if maybe given the time left, if I shouldn't give you such a difficult one. So instead, that's the beauty of Bob Murphy Week. What I don't ask you today, I can ask you tomorrow. All (laughs) right. So let's actually skip ahead to one that is tricky, but you know what? I'm not going to skip that one too. All right. How about this one? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Should the government control money? Go. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Well, this one is a bit obscure, so maybe it doesn't have a super long answer. Like, how do we take care of poor people? Might have a kind of a long answer. I don't know. But suppose there's some mad scientist out there, and he's doing wild, unethical experiments. I mean, maybe he's doing human-animal hybrids or whatever. How does he get regulated, so to speak, or taken care of in an ANCAP society? Now, you could. I know you could say, Look, even under the state, you could have some guy who is secretly running experiments like this that nobody would know about. And there's no solution to that now. He's probably getting okay. funded by the state. So. He's probably getting funded by them. <laughs> right. But, all right, let's leave that kind of uh, escape hatch aside. 
Can you conceive of a way that we handle a guy like that? Okay, sure. So like you you said, I mean, I am going to go down that path originally just for, to complete the answer that, yeah, with a lot of these things, the the standard economist response is compared to what? And so if you're going to come up with a really tricky problem that it's hard for a voluntary society to deal with, that's not necessarily a strike against the voluntary society. You got to check, okay, would a coercive one do it? And, and I'm not being facetious when I say, yeah, in terms of if the, if the danger is somebody with a lot of funding behind him and, you know, doing really despicable things without any check right now, that's what happens with, with states. I mean, they're, it, it's not science fiction. Like the U.S. government really did fund like projects trying to do mind control and doing experiments on people in mental hospitals that, that are just horrifying, right? And so, the, you know, that stuff's not completely made up. There really is, you know, real world um, things that, that generated, you know, the treatment and fiction and stuff for that. So that really stuff really does happen now. So in a, in, at the very least in a, in a free society, there would be no agency that would have all the legal power and the bulk of the money behind it. And so at the very least, you know, this sort of thing would be less of a concentrated problem that you know, it would be more of a ran, you know, eccentric guy, maybe with a bunch of money at his disposal. So at least the problem would be somewhat contained. So, I mean, if it's, you know, someone doing something to people against their will, then there'd just be standard, you know, if people could figure out, oh, wait a minute, there's, there's kidnapped people in that building over there that have experiments being done on them. You know, there'd be legal standing with those people, presumably. And I would expect the institutions in a free society, like the, their versions of police detectives or what have you, to get to the bottom of that and not be corrupt and let the rich eccentric guy pay them off the way it would happen right now. You know, like if some billionaire is doing crazy stuff on his property right now, um, you know, a lot of times the police might look the other way or whatever because he's in buddies with the mayor or something. So I think that stuff's less free. In the limit, though, if it, you know, if something like, no, technically, you know, there's there's nobody that he, whose rights he's violating. But if it's something that's just absolutely horrendous that 99% of us can agree, that's awful. We want this guy to stop. What can we do? Well, they can just boycott him, right? So like the electric company can stop selling him electricity, and the grocers can stop selling them food or whatever. So you're allowed to do that in a free society, right? That wouldn't be construed as discrimination or, you know, the, the way technically right now, depending on the type of company and, and what the rationale was, you'd probably be breaking the law if you just say, no, I don't want to sell to this customer. So ultimately, they'd be allowed to do things like that too. I think the problem is that there are so many possible wild scenarios that you can come up with, right? And as you say, it's not clear that, I mean, there are ways of handling them, but given the way human beings are, you're always going to be dealing with perverse people and bad situations. And they, it, just look at the newspaper, look at the, the horrible crimes we see people committing. We see people who have been torturing people and children for years, undetected. So we have to bear in mind that what we're trying to do is minimize these cases. And what is the institutional arrangement best ordered to minimize cases like this? Right. And, and I should just, I mean, I know you know this, but all the examples people are pointing to right now of how awful humans are, are all things happening right now when the state allegedly prevents that stuff. So it, it is weird rhetorically how people, you know, will point to all the things that happen under the state and say, it's a good thing we have the state. Otherwise, this kind of stuff might go on. That's, that's a weird argument. Right. Right. No, no kidding. All right. I've got a whole bunch, let's just say. i got a whole bunch of these. I want to pace ourselves properly, however. So 
Tomorrow we're going to do, we're going to talk a little bit about this uh, coronavirus problem because we have already done Ebola. So we did a whole episode on that. So I'm going to refer people to that, but we'll still, because people are thinking about this, cover that a little bit tomorrow. But then there are other tricky questions too, like children and, and child welfare that we need to get to. So a lot of great stuff still to come, but make sure for heaven's sake, you check out all the Bob Murphy links at tomwoods.com slash 1604, including the link to bobmurphyshow.com. Bob has a podcast and it's really darn good and very eclectic. And it's got Bob's smarts and his his guest's charisma. That came out wrong. You have charisma too. <laughs> smarts and charisma all bundled together in one. So make sure you're also listening to the Bob Murphy Show and we'll see you tomorrow. Become a smarter libertarian in just 30 minutes a day. Visit TomWoods.com to subscribe to the show for free, and we'll see you next time. Like the sound of The Tom Woods Show? My audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at Podsworth.com.